welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I am ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, but not just any fantasy today. Today's a very exciting moment for us because we get to complete a trilogy. We're... Have fin- and you know completed our the, a trilogy for this author for the first time. We are talking about Robin Hobb's Farseer trilogy, and today we are here to talk about the third and final book in that trilogy, Assassin's Quest. That's exactly what we're here to do, Charles. And this is uh, this is long coming for me. This is mm-hmm. my first time finishing. This trilogy by Robin Hobb. Not my first time starting this trilogy, but my first time <laughs> finishing it. Uh, yeah, over a decade ago, I, I gave it the old college try, quite literally, because I was in college at the time, I believe. And uh, yeah, this time I, uh, you know, long graduated from college. I have. Uh, no longer it, frat bro, go, Dylan. I think. No. <laughs> Yeah, I don't Not know a, if I was ever quite <laughs> frat bro Dylan, but you were in I, a fraternity though, which I makes was in a you a uh, frat bro. <laughs> uh, frat bro is more of a you know a state of mind. It's yeah, um, there is an a, and a uh, set of archetype. Behaviors. There is an archetype yeah. to frat bro that you don't embody, but it's still funny to call you a frat bro and think of frat bro Dylan attempting to read Robin Hobbs uh, Farseer trilogy. <laughs> So like, yo, dude, where the dragons at? Which, <laughs> Nothing's uh, happening well, in this book. I, uh, in Game of Thrones, they were having sex every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> very fair, very fair. So, like all the frat bros yeah, now trying think, to see Oppenheimer, and they're like, where's all the action, dude? This movie stinks. And then they leave. <laughs> that's a very... That was your personal experience going to the theater. (laughs) Not necessarily a general trope that everyone can relate to, Charles. (laughs) Those were, I did see real frat bros at Oppenheimer, and that was their exact criticism. They fell asleep. They said it was boring. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's one of the main criticisms that people sling the way of the Farseer trilogy. It is. But. Now that we're older and we've matured, Charles, Mm. we can see the value in this slow burn fantasy trilogy. And there's a lot of payoff in this third and final installment of at least this trilogy. I know the realm of the elderlings has a whole lot more to offer. It does. It does. There's like, what, 10 more books or something? There's like three or four more um, books within it. Um, But yeah, it is. I'm super excited to get your full opinion now that you've completed it because we haven't talked about the ending yet. And this is, like you said, is a long time coming. I'm really interested to hear your perspective, particularly as someone that had given this series a chance long ago and has finished it now, like how that perception may have changed or if there's anything you kind of noticed or appreciated. Because I, to me, like I'm so excited that we're here at the end because... I enjoy this book quite a lot. The reviews on Goodreads are kind of all over the place. Lots of twos and lots of five-star reviews. And Mm. so it just makes it fun to talk about because I don't... I I think within both realms of love it or hate it, there's there's valid points in both. But for some reason, for me, it all just comes out to like a really great, different, 
original, interesting book that has come to realize influenced a lot of our favorite books today. Like we talked a lot about how we can see the connection to Patrick Rothfuss in our earlier episodes. And even now, right before we started recording, we couldn't help ourselves and chatted a little bit. And we were kind of talking about how there may be some sort of like con- theme thematic connections to stuff in, in Grimdark and even someone like Joe Abercrombie, who we love so much. So I, that's something I really enjoyed about this book too. Just realizing like, wow, a lot of stuff I like about this book is what makes like a lot of mo- like current mainstream super popular fantasy books like my favorites today you know there's a lot that's there and it all kind of started in modern fantasy with a series like this and robin Hobbs. so i'm super excited to get into it but before we get any further there's going to be a lot of spoilers for the farseer trilogy and dylan i think it's only right that you give one of your famous spoiler warnings gladly charles so this is going to be a no-holds-barred conversation of the entire first Farseer trilogy here. It's It means that Assassin's Apprentice, uh, Royal Assassin, and Assassin's Quest, those are all fair game for spoilers from here on out. Uh, we haven't, neither of us have read anything else in the Realm of the Elderlings trilogies, uh, or uh, Realm of the Elderlings world, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so you don't have to worry about any of that. But if you haven't yet read the Farseer trilogy and you don't want anything spoiled for you, now's a good time to turn this down in your headphones, catch up to where we're at, and then come back for a listen of this deep dive. Well said, Dylan. We are now into full-on spoiler territory. It's hard not to jump all the way to the end, but don't, I, like we waited so long, and I feel like I just have to know, what are your kind of first reactions to having completed the series what did you think well i think that it was worth it to read all of it and i think once you've read this final installment it's a long book and i would say it remains relatively slow i i would say that the second book was the book that felt the most action-packed is probably generous uh, but (laughs) Sure. felt like it had the most action and the most stuff going on. Even this mm-hmm. one, uh, f- despite the, the length, felt a little bit more uh, slow and uh, mm-hmm. felt a little bit more along the pace of, of the first book, Assassin's Apprentice. But all of that ends up worth it because you, by the end, you care so much about these characters. You care about how it pans out. You know fits so well mm-hmm. and uh, and robin hobb pulls no punches uh, <laughs> no with how she yeah, how she decides no. to finish this novel so i i credit her for that i think that uh, though the book you know you wouldn't classify it as grimdark exactly uh, as you were mentioning before you see how some of the aspects of of failure and hopelessness that are explored here mm-hmm. are uh, feel like predecessors to Grimdark, and it leaves you really floored. And I think floored in a way that maybe we'd be entirely 
unprepared for in 1997 <laughs> if we were reading this when this first came out because right. you have to think now we've read a lot of trilogies and grimdark trilogies and they're characterized by this like a lot of times ending that is purposefully not necessarily unsatisfying um mm-hmm. but it, it, it's it's hard to find the right word like uh, purposefully a gut punch and reminding the reader that things don't always get wrapped up nicely in a neat bow. And I think that uh, Hobb, while she, it's very conclusive, uh, it's also very real in the sense that there's a lot of prices to be paid. And even the characters that come out, let's say, alive, they they come out far from uh, physically and psychologically unscathed because, uh, I mean, even you look at, that fits and you knew he was going to come out alive uh, but he's <laughs> he's kind of li- living this resigned humble life that right uh, this hermit uh, lifestyle yeah is kind of it's sad like he seems yeah i guess happier than when he was actually involved in all this uh, mayhem and scheming and life-threatening stuff but it's like oh wow this is our hero and it's not like it doesn't have the feeling of I won't give away anything that happens at the end of, uh, you know, big fantasy trilogies. <laughs> like maybe one written by Tolkien, uh, because right. you know, it's possible you don't know that. Even if you're going to spoil Tolkien. <laughs> uh, yeah. But let's just say there are some big fantasy trilogies uh, that involve quests where the hero comes back and... Uh, they get this kind of humble life, but it's like, oh, they deserve and live out this humble life with their friends and family and people around them and all of that. But uh, Fitz, he, he feels more like a broken shell of, of <laughs> what he was. It's an interesting uh, he, comparison. He loses, yeah, he, he loses pretty much everyone he cares about and that cares about him, uh, some of which think he's some of whom think he's dead, uh, most mm-hmm. of whom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of whom is a dragon. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's hard, hard to maintain a relationship with a with a dragon. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, then there's, like, Starling, who's who's also there. but <laughs> <laughs> She's there. Every once in a while. Yeah. She pops in and out every once in a while. Make yeah. sure he's all right. Yeah. It's rough. No, it's you never want to, yeah. Yeah, the romance no. uh, ends in <laughs> absolute tragedy for the for romance. As the first time reading the series, just caught me completely off guard, and it broke my heart originally, like four fits to have to go through what he went through. And then the second time, you're like, "This is actually kind of interesting. This is something that she weaved into the narrative." from the very beginning of this book. And I actually highlighted a lot of stuff in the beginning of the book where she very cleverly weaves in like the way Birch reacts to some of Fitz's comments about Molly, where like he's been seeing her that whole time and is like not telling him. And he'll be like, oh, and then Birch turned away or Birch was like startled and said, what did you say? Like, you know, like those kind of things. She she did a whole bunch of times in the beginning, and it was super interesting in the reread to see some of that worked in. But like you get to appreciate some of that more when you're not as distracted by just like the total blind side of this unexpected 
kind of blossoming romance between um, Molly and Burrich, and you feel conflicted about it in so many ways and like we can dedicate a chunk of the episode to talking about it but there was something that like i don't it, it caught me so off guard and but it also was kind of this really interesting thing to happen to fits like the poor guy <laughs> like the only two people in the world really that he that were you could consider his like loved ones and family that they kind of get together and become happy without him is <laughs> so weird so bizarre so heartbreaking yeah it's very bizarre and heartbreaking as you say i i didn't really pick up on the bird uh stuff really with molly and the like the foreshadowing of it that you're mentioning it was super uh, i did subtle. pick up on the yeah i did pick up on the stuff where I don't know. Fitz is pretty much saying from the present narrative that he, like, he lost Molly. And maybe people take that to mean more in the short term when they're reading, like, the first book or the second book. But I mean, you can hear me saying on the first podcast episode that we did on this series, like in The Assassin's Apprentice, uh, that. I'm pretty sure. And I hadn't read the following two books yet. And I said, well, you know that this does not right. end well. Because there's literally <laughs> moments where Fitz is yeah. like, well, like I did this and uh, uh, that may have been why I lost her. And I guess you could take that as like why he lost her in that one moment. But also mm-hmm. I kind of assumed this is not going to end well. The, the fact that she ends up with his father figure. <laughs> 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 the guy who raised him. Isn't that wild? Uh, that I could not have seen coming <laughs> until I saw it coming right when it was about to happen. <laughs> and there was right. there was also a moment, I think it was Starling who said, like, oh, so uh, you've left your like quote unquote wife with this guy and he's taking care of her and you say he's like really nice and uh, a good man and treats women well and women like him and he's and fit is like yeah and, and she's like yeah <laughs> she's like you might want to keep an eye on that <laughs> like you might want to watch out and seriously like, no and so that does kind of put the seed in the it's good foreshadowing if you want to call it that it does put the right. seed in the reader's mind but it's easy to do what Fitz is doing where it's like but he's old <laughs> even in book two <laughs> and they actually bring that up like Fitz remembers the comment at the end but back in book two where Molly's like everyone like Birch is like a desirable guy you could do worse than Birch yeah. and and like that was just kind of like a she didn't necessarily already have plans to like be enter a relationship with him at that time nowhere close to it but it's one of those things of like we're working this in and um starting it and even in like i'm i highlighted some of it when i read it because i was like oh i'm catching it um in chapter two of this book yeah where my probably one of my favorite scenes besides the ending is these beginning scenes in this cabin where Fitz is getting rehabilitated by Birch and Shade, and they're having these really heavy 
conversations about like is fits better off like becoming a beast person or not and what the difference is and if was he better off dead and like i hate you burich and like i hate you chade and like all, like maybe we kind of messed you up we regret what we did but you know that some really interesting stuff going on in this cabin but one of the things that fits is like kind of thinking about molly's and he goes um i've thought of molly often do you know where she went and then the birds just yes and then it goes when he said no more than that i knew better than to ask and then he goes oh i knew it was wise to let her go or whatever i hope that uh she, she believes me dead i hope that whoever she went to takes better care of her than i did i hope he loves her as she deserves there was a rustling of birch's blankets what do you mean he asked guardedly you know like these kinds of things of like he already knew he was crossing the line a little bit and it does that a couple of times throughout the book where he's like dancing around the conversation of of molly and it's super interesting just to see her work that in and she did that before she does that before where she's not afraid to just really really subtly just let a character do something honestly and not make it as like a foreshadowing moment not necessarily trying to get the reader's attention but putting it in anyway because it's what the kind of the character would naturally do so that when the moment does come you 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 buy into it, you know. I do think that there's a world where Birch and Molly kind of wind up together. They have no one else. They're bonded and like they're sharing the similar loss of fits, and they seem like a good match. I mean, there's this age gap thing we could get into, but beyond that, um, they seem it's like a little Dane Cook esque. Yeah. Feels like we have to keep talking about Dane Cook on this podcast, but I guess that's we'll just more keep an issue with the fantasy genre and with Dane Cook than it is with uh, what topics we seek out. Right. Oh, also, there's a line in chapter five when he first starts to um, skill out at night, and he's like. I thought of her and longed hopelessly after what had been between us. Some perverse fate bought me dreams of Burrich instead. Where it's like, oh, how weird that, like, I'm thinking about Molly and my skill dreams are of Burrich, you know? Like, it, it's it's kind of like these interesting... It's a vivid dream that made no sense. I sat across from him. He was sitting at a table by a fire, mending harness, as he often did of an evening. Mug of tea replaced his brandy, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it was one of those things that's like, why did I dream of birds? That was so weird. You know, it was like weaving it before Molly even enters the the, the scene, you know. So, like in that dream, it was just of Birch working on something. But he's clearly like in someone else's home, right? He's clearly in Molly's home. He's not drinking because Molly's there. You know, that kind of stuff. So, it's interesting what robin hobb decides to invest in in this series and that's why i wanted to read it on the show and have you finish it because i feel like i need someone to talk to about this and we've already been talking about it for two books now but i feel like it kind of recontextualizes itself when you finish the whole series of like here's someone who like when people pick up or seek out a fantasy book there's typical things to expect of like oh good overcoming evil saving the princess like you know, epic quests, that kind of stuff. And Hobb purposefully invests in everything else and lets that stuff play out in the background or she'll yada yada it sometimes and stuff like that. And she just fully invests in fits and he's a character that doesn't get any princess, doesn't overthrow any evil, he kind of does. Um, but he doesn't come out like a hero or famous or 
even happy. And by investing in that for so long, there's the word I use all the time about it. It becomes intimate in a way that you just rarely get in a work of fiction. And that's just one of the things that when this relationship comes and you see this almost to fits, it's perverse to see like Molly and Birch like wind up in each other's arms, you know, and to see that happen, but know that they think you're dead and they're happy and together and you don't plan on going back into their lives anyway. And then you take all that pain and start to feed it into this dragon. You know, all this stuff is happening at the end and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is so intense and you don't know how to feel like because you're on Fitz's perspective. You're like, oh my God, how could they ever get together? But they think he's dead, you know? And it's like, how could this stuff happen? This book is so slow. It's like, well, we're in it with Fitz this whole time. And this book is like 700 pages. It is long. And, and maybe parts of it, you could argue the pacing could be brought up. But by making it long, it's again, I always say that where this is investment that Robin Hobb puts in to create this reading experience that I just don't think you can get with many other fantasy books. That's all very well said, Charles. She she invests in the character study of Fitz and his relationships above all else. And then to see these two people with whom Fitz arguably, but I, w- I would say likely has the closest relationships with so you understand them extremely well through the lens of Fitz's relationship with them to see them end up together but to see it happen in this very like strange but also semi-logical way that it plays (laughs) out like right it makes sense but also right it shouldn't (laughs) but it does like and I don't know. The age gap is obviously the the, the weird part about it. But uh, other than that times, aspect, man. she's wanted times, for, uh, wanted to be killed, and this is like the only person in the world that is can help you. And also, he's just a nice guy, and he's nurturing, and they yeah. always are, Charles. They always. Are. <laughs> it's those nice guys you got to worry <laughs> so, about, man. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's. So, Charles, as a person who's reading, who has read through this a second time, how long do you think Birch been scheming? (laughs) I think has he been been scheming? scheming. I think, you know, the second chapter of this book is telling where he's not forthcoming with, oh, I went and saw Molly. We hung out, you know. I was working on some leather straps on the floor, drinking tea at her place just the other day. She's good. You know, he's very guarded. He's very hesitant to share what he's saying. And to me, part of that is because at some level he knows that he likes Molly in some way. You know, maybe he won't acknowledge it. Maybe he thinks he's doing the right thing. But that's always been Birch's MO, um, to be kind of withdrawn in terms of how he nurtures fits and that's kind of ironic he goes on to be like this great parent for um uh nettle you know it's like what this was the kid you had sleep on the in the hay with the dogs um when he first came to you you know but um i think he's been scheming since unknowingly since chapter two i I think he's 
of, of this book. I think he's been invested in what's going on. Um, and then once he thinks Fitz is truly dead, which was kind of an interesting twist by Hobb to like have them think that he's truly dead. Uh, it was then it was like, OK, well, at this point, this is all I've got in the world. You know, like there's yeah. no one else. So then he's kind of latched on at that point. And I genuinely don't think he like acknowledge like is aware of it for a while. Like it takes a long time for him to see this as a possibility. But that's just Birch, you know. He's you know old dogs, you know, hard to teach him new tricks and get him to, you know, make the first move. It takes like an attack and a swarm of bees to really make you see your infatuation with someone else. Mm. Not the <laughs> truth. <laughs> ain't that the but, truth yeah he kind of is like oh we could get married and then that would be helpful yep. but like, you don't actually have to like do anything and she's like <laughs> well that's exactly what someone who wants I to do could. something yeah, says exactly. you know that's the nice guy mo <laughs> yeah classic nice guy move from classic <laughs> yeah and Molly falls victim to it. She but does. She could do worse. Maybe I guess, they'll. So. She did say that someone could do worse than Burrich, mm-hmm. and she will do no worse than Burrich, but also no better. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe <laughs> who we'll knows? See what happens in the, yeah, he's in not. The he's not a young guy. Series. You know? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of books um, left. <laughs> There are a lot of books left, which which makes all this interesting. It's almost one of those where you're like, ooh, this ends so not well in the sense of anything good happening to Fitz, but it ends so well in terms right. of just good writing that yeah. it, it's one of those where you're almost like, ooh, do I even want to keep I know. going? I've like, always just thought this was a complete and... done story. You know, the fact that there's more out there. And I mean, the last book only came out in 2013, only 10 years ago now. But I mean, it's like not that long ago, considering the first book was 1995. So yeah. um, it's relatively recently. It was, oh, no, wait, I lied. That was when there's a whole nother trilogy after 2013. So the last Realm of the Elderlings book was Assassin's Fate in 2017. So not wow. that long ago, Pretty man. Recent. That's recent. That's, you know, for six years. So, yeah, plenty of plenty of things to happen along the way. I know they all don't follow the Fitz story arc and all that, but I know some of them do. So who knows? Maybe Molly and Birch are a part of that somehow. I'm sure they are. How could they not be? Um, but... Yeah. The other thing, speaking of perverse, uh, what did you want? What did you think about the body swapping uh, and then like the uncle swapping with the step nephew to use his body to have relations with his wife? Uh, you know, Fitz's aunt, right? Like, I'm going to use your body to have relations with my wife, your aunt, you know? <laughs> uh, well, it's. It's not biological, like no, uh, that's true. Relationship there, yeah. So, mm-hmm. I I guess I'm not I'm not opposed to to that on any sort of it's like, not incestual grounds because it's, um, you swapped minds. You know, who cares what body it is? 
look, <laughs> all the adults, all of them were adults, all of them were consenting. That's Whatever true. they're getting up to, I'll... But how much know, could Fitz really to... consent to that, you know? Like, he's talking about saving the world, you know, he's talking about procreating so his kid doesn't have to be put on the line for, of secession. Like, how much of a choice did he have, really? You know, he's he idolizes... Um, his uncle, like how, Verity, how much, you know? But I still I think he was coerced. Uh, I think he was going to agree to do it whether he wanted to or not, you know, because that's just the kind of guy Fitz is. <laughs> he does a lot of stuff he doesn't want to do. Um, didn't Fitz like? Uh, didn't they do the reverse in book two? Like Fitz had sex with Ketrickin in Verity's. Mm-hmm body oh right he kind no it was the wolf went into his body and he had sex with molly that happened maybe he like skill dreamed but i also think he like because there's one where molly was like "Ooh, you were so good last night and he's like what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) and the wolf was like oh yeah (laughs) and you're like interesting in the second book i i think where Maybe I'm mistaking that because he may have had like a scale dream where he was like like, privy to it or like witnessing it or something. Controlling the situation, he wasn't just like watching. And then I think there was Kendrickin kind of had that reaction of like, "Wow, like you had the uh, like uh, you were like a younger man, (laughs) (laughs) like the energy of young." Because you know, Verity's like throughout this thing been aging well beyond his years so she was but also drinking the tea which was i thought an interesting an interesting twist the elder bark or whatever it's called tea um that gives you like profound feelings of hopelessness is a symptom and it makes you really weak and no one actually uses it because it's super harmful you know that was an interesting theme throughout this whole thing isn't it just bad for Skill users, in per- it's, like in particular, right? It weakens your connection to the skill, and it also gives you feelings of hopelessness. Um, that mm. was another thing, um, which I don't know if that's unique to skill users or not. It sounded like that's what everyone what happens to anyone that drinks it. But on, the only people that were drinking it were people that were, you know, bothered by using the skill. It's kind of interesting. This whole theme of lost knowledge or like just not really knowing how to skill or how to handle skill is was an interesting one in this book and and like kettle what makes her interesting is that you know she's 200 years old she's able she knows a lot more about the skill but she was cut off from it so she has the knowledge but she can't demonstrate anything so and she's not willing to share the information for a really long time um so one of the things that I was always intrigued by with this book, and it kind of goes along with these lines of failure, is like just how, just like the passing of knowledge has failed. Like the society has failed to the extent that all the skill users, which used to be this, these royal coteries, could do all kinds of incredible things, and then like slowly they like the coterie, the skill master didn't train enough people, and then she got sick and. Gave it to this 
guy Galen who was a horrible dude and wanted to you know work with Regal to overthrow the king and refuse to teach anybody and then you get these Verity and Regal people genuinely trying and they just don't have the skills to, to do anything and they're just like stumbling into this magic they don't know and they're learning it it, it was an interesting development i don't know I, I feel like robin hobb here she's such a fantastic writer there's so much going on with these books she could write like a thesis on all of these different themes that she's weaving in but i find that lost knowledge piece to be particularly interesting and with the creations of the dragons and how we perceive the wit and all these other things are, right. are super interesting the kind of biases in society yeah it seems like with the wit uh, we, we've talked about this some in previous episodes where the wit kind of panned out to have a greater effect on making night eyes more human i would say than Mm -hmm. it did in turning fits more bestial at least in terms (laughs) of long term like he did what he ended up doing was not typical with uh at the (laughs) end of book two beginning of book three he was pretty much yeah yeah, shared the body of an animal and he needed to go through reprogramming (laughs) yeah you're not typically doing that when you're using the wit like it, it was at least, like, Birch made it sound like if Fitz kept using the wit just normally, then he would permanently turn into a beast. And nothing like that ever happened. But Night Eyes did start to develop more human-like characteristics, start to do more planning for the future, all that kind right. of uh, stuff. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that a lot of those seem to be misconceptions that people hold about the wit sure and yeah it's It's the way to make dragons come back to life combining the skill and the wit like gave them the jump start to to reanimate you know true yeah it's it's an interesting reveal that the elderlings are are dragons you know i guess in my head it was i was thinking them more likely to be like elves you know, some sort of <laughs> mysterious but humanoid type creatures. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention <laughs> in my earlier books that my well, brain went no there. No one but... knew who the Elderlings were. You know, it was, again, lost. It's like not that distant of history. That is just completely yeah. lost. Like the royalty, shrewd, verity, chivalry, regal. They had very limited understanding of their own history. Which is kind of fascinating. And it all comes back to, again, at the end of the day, it was like, it was all of over a dispute that was basically like, hey, like, you guys were invading our lands, now we're going to invade your lands. And we don't even remember why, other than that we just hate you and we're going to do it. And it's that back and forth. And it was only the, like, overcoming those kind of biases that they were able to instigate change in the first place I know that there's a message in there and it's a clever one because regal uses wit to like weaponizes perception of the wit to even get there was um what was his name not hands was it hands birch's um the kid who went on to become about, yeah. like the stable master after birch 
where right. um he sees Fitz and he's just like, oh, he's witted and runs off in terror. <laughs> and then Fitz is like, we grew up together, like, man. Bro. Like, what? <laughs> what? Like, you're going to be that superstitious and fearful of me off of like rumors you know you know me so but he also thought he was dead and came back to life you know those those kinds of things but there's an interesting piece around like ignorance and just like biases that permeate this whole book like ignorance is such a huge part of this book like no one knows what's going on Fitz has no idea what's going on and they're just grasping at straws and it ends up pretty much ruining poor Fitz's life and he's only able to salvage what he can by you know coming to peace with who he is and the things he can do and and surrounding himself with people that you know can accept him for that and that's really the only way he carved out any kind of of peace for himself yeah and it's it's a very interesting ignorance in terms of like ignorance of the wit as a concept, but also mm-hmm. ignorance plays a big role in terms of why Burrich and Molly end up together. Ignorance oh, of yeah. the fact that that Fitz is alive, like the decisions that we make without complete information. Uh, that's oh yeah, uh, I mean you know, Verity just through. running off to find the Elderlings and leaving his kingdom to yeah. just completely corrupt, uh, collapse the royalty not doing anything about the lack of coterie members like shrewd just basically let his son overthrow him and kill him (laughs) in the last book right it's It's this whole like this blindsided view of what's happening and it's like kind of the worst downfall of this society more than anything else it's just like all this book makes you feel like oh all the things that could have been like these skill users could have been so powerful Fitz could have been happy with Molly raising his kid like you start to realize all these like Shrewd could have been alive he could have had this nice relationship with Verity Verity could have been in his young healthy body still like all these things that could have been that just aren't because people let things fall to the wayside out of like bigotry and ignorance you know there's something that speaks to me about that at a very human level of like this is how society collapses on itself one of the common critiques that i've read in my research leading up to this book a lot of reviewers they talk about regal and they talk about how oh he wasn't that great of a villain and his arc just kind of peters out and and to me i'm like regal's like one of the most true to life villains you're ever gonna find and it's like his superpower is just being like so selfish and you could say ignorant too but just so like there's no way someone with any kind of conscience would do this, but he does it. And that's what makes him powerful and continue to be powerful. It's like, he didn't think twice about leaking energy off of his dad or betraying his um, brothers or betraying the people that work for him or just leaving the capital to go to his hometown to set up a new capital. Like these are things that a lot of people in power just do. And it, and it's not like they're stronger and that's why they're in charge. Sometimes they're just, can make these sociopathic choices and that's what keeps them in charge and in power. You know, it's this failing upwards kind of mentality. And it's super interesting to see all that play out in this book in a way I've never read before. I don't know. Yeah. I actually think that by the end of the trilogy, Regal is a great villain. I Mm. think that I might've said he's after assassins apprentice, like 
I don't know what I did say on the episode, but I would be more open to the like, he's very just straight up mustache twirling evil mm. and it makes him kind of one dimensional villain. I don't think I would say he's like a bad villain. Like we've seen bad villains before that are, you know, really, really one dimensional and <laughs> boring even. And Regal is certainly not boring. Right. I think that it's by the end of it, especially where we get kind of this brief, view into like regal psyche in this book like and uh, like fits is in his head and just all his paranoia and the way Mm. that he sees fits and the way that he thinks that like his mother was uh, assassinated and they'd be coming for me next like all that kind of stuff it's like oh wow like it must be torture being regal yeah and (laughs) the drug use and yeah yeah like, he is not having a good time of it, and he sees himself as just scraping by to survive somehow. And I think that's one of the things that can get lost when we're solely in Fitz's point of view. I think we mm-hmm. talked about in a previous episode that it's like, uh, like, why can't other people see through Regal as easily as we, the reader, can? <laughs> it's like, well, we, the reader... Are getting, are getting a very biased lens of Regal. And yeah, we kind of like, talked about it yeah. last time. Um, and it's what makes stories like this and like the Kingkiller Chronicles and even certain chapters of Joe Abercrombie's work um, have these characters where you're in their perspective so convincingly that you see a character like Regal and you go, this guy's obviously a bad, he's literally twirling his mustache every time he's on scene. But you're seeing that through the lens of someone that genuinely hates him. And there's this kind of, again, I'm going to say ignorance that Fitz has about a lot of people in his life, Molly included, but Regal too. He's got a huge blind spot for Regal and that, oh, Regal's this spoiled child who just wants to, you know, take the throne and he's dumb enough to just kill people to do it but what you don't see that you kind of get clues in the first couple books that you know regal's like a super charming guy very personable um, people like him when they speak to him he even one over ketrickin for a while um but then you get to see his enterprising side like there's things about regal that we don't get the full scope of like he was raised by a, a mother who was probably like coaching him to overthrow the family from the beginning and she was you know from context you get the sense that she was on drugs a lot and probably od'd and that that definitely had an effect on regal too and then that one moment at the end that you brought up where he where fitz goes through his skill wall and is in his brain you see how like tortured he is and it's so interesting to see like the perception of all these characters that we see is such a very narrow view of what is basically an adolescent kid uh, of all of these people in his life and as he branches out he sees how they have to live on without him and it's super interesting to see that and i i agree with you regal was one of the more interesting ones for sure i think that it's it's easy to just see regal when you're in fitz's perspective as like why is this guy so freaking (laughs) obsessed with like killing fits and taking the throne and all that kind of stuff but 
you, it's really illuminated when you yeah. you get to see from his point of view. Yeah. And there's and, this long thing of Fitz trying to kill Regal that goes on for a very long time in the middle of the book. <laughs> but what's interesting about it is you get to see how like public perception is pretty positive uh, of Regal. Like people genuinely like what he's doing and he just won over that he just took control of the narrative right he was like oh Ketrickin like did all this horrible stuff and so did Verity and so did Fitz and like he, he he was very good at that and he won over the whole kingdom basically and he put those like gladiator arenas in and you know all of these things to to kind of win people over so it's kind of interesting to see how Fitz has to kind of live in that and we've seen a couple times where he's had to like adjust his view of the world and the people in his life and they're always fascinating like we got a lot of it with molly in the last book where it's like what do you think she's gonna wait around forever you know she like this relationship could never work did you really like like her as much as you thought or she liked you more than you thought like you're not the only one who gets to decide like how this relationship works kind of like what Night Eye said in book one, something along the lines of, do you think that to bond or not to bond someone is your choice alone? You know, like to bond someone is a mutual thing. And I think Fitz had a hard time learning that for so long. And and it's, yeah, it's interesting to get when you get a book that's so committed to one perspective, you can kind of have those conversations and the way Robin Hobb toys with that perception and especially focusing on the fact that our main character is not one that's emotionally mature and can see these relationships as well as we think he can and that kind of stuff always fascinates me and you know you we brought up the first law earlier it kind of reminds me of why i like the way the first law is written for many characters where you're so committed to a certain perspective that you can kind of be charmed into thinking the way they think and not even considering what else could be happening like how else this situation could be interpreted you know because the way Fitz you can interpret Fitz's actions in a whole lot of ways like he just ran off for not a very good reason and abandoned his family you know when he just could have turned around and come back you know those kinds of things yeah it's interesting because you don't really think of Fitz as this like charismatic misleading unreliable narrator which is it's very easy to slot someone like quoth into right quoth from the king killer chronicle by patrick office mm-hmm. uh, he fits that like a glove right and right. i think that fits the ways so quoth in the king killer chronicle i assume the ways in which we're misled by him are like a little bit more not even necessarily intentional but a little bit more like quote twists his words and the narrative <laughs> and all that kind of stuff very I, yeah i would say it's it's kind of deliberate but then there's fit who he's unreliable because he's like <laughs> just can't see things for <laughs> right. the way they are and it's also like a twist I mean, on the coming of age where it's like oh like someone like harry potter oh I, I come of age when i realize that i'm better than i thought i was and i can be really good whereas a lot of it's like coming of age is realizing you're you've been a jackass this whole time and that you should yeah. maybe kind of rethink the way you treat people you know it's interesting different <laughs> takes on coming of age <laughs> yeah and there's like does does he ever really 
mature and like grow i think good question like because you want to see like oh i experienced all this pain and that has shaped me into a better person it's like or i could just give it to the dragon (laughs) yeah just let the dragon have all that and then i don't have to grow from my pain and experiences and everyone is like fits don't do that like that's not a good idea and he's like He's like, yeah, I don't really like, want to I don't deal care. With it hurts right too now. much. Yeah. And you kind of yeah. feel for him. And I've always liked that part of the magic system of like this idea of you feed the dragon pretty much everything, which is what Fitz has kind of been doing his whole life is like giving his life to the service of the crown, right? To his king. And then now you literally are pouring your memories, your emotions, everything into bringing this dragon to life. So when Fitz is experiencing this very real and complicated heartbreak, very complicated, like when your when your um, wife, air quotes, wife runs off with your dad, you know, it's like that's a hard thing to kind of so come to terms does. with. It's just like. <laughs> Like, when your wife leaves you is one thing. It leaves you for your dad is next level. And they both think you're daddy. So it's just a lot of stuff to work through there. And yeah, this idea of feeding it to the dragon. And, and, and it kind of comes to this this idea of, and you made a great point, Dylan, when you said, like, but does Fitz even learn his lesson? Not really. At the end, he 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 lives as a recluse as a hermit in the woods. And everyone's like, why are you doing this? You know, you're not that old. You could live a life like in society like do whatever life you want he's like no i prefer to be um a bum i'm fine trust me i'm okay this is the right thing for me it's like no he didn't did he really come of a like did he really learn that lesson no like look at where his situation like he's locked himself up in a shack and he has his his um i don't know what you call his relationship uh with the um the musician what's her name it's uh starling 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 has to literally come by and like drop him off food and it's like i brought you someone to live with you so you're not super (laughs) crazy you know and it's like okay like this is someone who may still have some learning to do in later installments but it's an interesting question like as a coming of age novel did this character come of age like what does that even mean maybe realizing that you're meant for mediocrity and you're not going to solve all your problems and you're just going to get old is part of coming of age (laughs) charles is this a buildings roman i think it is a buildings roman (laughs) (laughs) a word that we learned together in like all of our first ever episodes it was um the wizard of earthsea was when we learned that word yeah yeah a novel dealing with one person's formative years or spiritual education formative Mm. years yes spiritual education Mm. no not quite i don't not quite he yeah he hasn't seen the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind (laughs) yeah that's right like that's basically (laughs) giving it to the jacket just get rid of that that's uh, so true i don't know it's no way to deal with it. So I, no, you got to face your I mean, problems and come to terms with them, right, Dylan? I like to think so. As, uh, <laughs> the therapist in me likes to think so. But it's you it's funny. Feed we did your most traumatic memories to the dragon, or erase them. We, eternal sunshine. 
style? Well, we did, you know, in my PhD program, we had a class that was like a more neuro-focused class, and they're like trying out these Eternal Sunshine style drugs apparently like in the real world mm. <laughs> uh that they are like oh if we give people the like they're very crude at this point but maybe they're moving in the right direction here um or wrong direction <laughs> but yeah they have these drugs that are sort of moving the direction toward eternal sunshine like delete this memory style right. And it's like, oh, do these have applications in terms of trauma? Like, can we just get people to delete their trauma and then they're better? And like, we had to write an essay. Like, we're counseling. It's like PhD students. We had to write an essay. It's like, (laughs) well, then we're out of jobs. No, but it's actually like, would that be good or helpful? Like, well, they say uh, chasing the dragon is when you're doing drugs, and then you're feeding the dragon also, which is where you're giving up all your memories and experiences well, and <laughs> it's kind of both expressions do include dragons charles i don't know if <laughs> but they could both be, on anything they could both be relevant to a drug that erases your memories you know because you're sure. both chasing yeah. and feeding That's... the dragon in that case and that is oh, not yeah. a situation that you want to find yourself in if you can avoid it yeah i mean it's true though but we like we learn there's post-traumatic growth. That's a very real thing that lots of people experience. We And at what point it's also there's like psychological questions around if it would uh, if it would actually eliminate the traumatic reaction or just the memory of the trauma, which like memory is a, a, a key aspect of uh, like you have to be able to recall it to do some of the empirically supported treatments for helping people with trauma okay we get it you're educated (laughs) (laughs) but either way anyway the choice to feed the dragon does not speak to growth in my opinion uh, and that's when it comes to that's actually very insightful uh and even kettle says it's not like just by trying to forget you're still gonna like be reminded of it it's still gonna affect you but by feeding it you're gonna have a harder time facing it and coming to terms with it you know something like that was what she said and you can tell by the end that he's not really quite there like to terms with it um and that's the interesting part of this book is is that focus on failure in so many ways um one of the main criticism of this book is like oh nothing happens this book is so sad like this character kind of is depressing to me it's it's a very uh, i'll say i don't know if i want to say bold choice from robin hobb to dedicate so much time and skill uh, and storytelling in a character who's ultimately like a tragic character but I don't know, it allows to explore some of these themes in a way that like a happy ending just couldn't do sincerely. And there's something about reflecting on on Fitz's suffering that brings up a lot of good questions. And I don't know, Dylan, I guess I wanted to to get kind of your reaction on how you thought about this idea of failure and what it was like to read three not short books about a character who ultimately just fails his way through the through the whole book and meets all kinds of tragedy and isn't that like glorified hero that you come to expect mm. from a lot of traditional fantasy. 
did that take away from your reading experience? Did it take away some of the enjoyment of the reading experience? Well, we're big Joe Abercrombie fans, and <laughs> we like chat with him. He did say <laughs> that he did his like undergrad thesis on the topic of human failure, <laughs> uh, which was unsurprising given some of the choices he makes with his writing. But uh, yeah, as uh, as someone who's at this point read a lot of grimdark and stuff like that, I'm I'm not afraid to enjoy some good old human failure, <laughs> but. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting, and especially in its context, we've talked about what would it be like reading this in 1997 alongside, like, at that point, the still well-ongoing um, uh, Wheel of Time series, right. right, which is, is I didn't end up finishing that yet, but, <laughs> <laughs> far from finishing it, but it, it's, uh, I have a feeling that's not going to be a... Uh, you know, a uh, treatise, right? What they call it. An examination of human failure in the end. But, um, yeah, I I just find it interesting. I think the choice is, is a thoughtful one and one that very few were making at that time. And I enjoyed it. It's, it's interesting when you step back and think about like, okay, well, what does happen at the end of this novel? It's like, well, the long lost king ter- returns and he he's turned into a dragon <laughs> and he destroys all their enemies and the bad guy who uh, usurped the throne was killed. And, and that's the end. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, that's that does sound like a heroic end to an epic fantasy novel that we've read a million times but we don't get the perspective of verity in that sense and we instead get uh, you know the royal bastard who's just been strung along by all these events and ends a hermit who's miserable even you know I don't know if he would describe himself that way, but uh, he's definitely he has got, not worked like, through a lot of his issues. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and his answer to all the ways in which he's been hurt by having actual relationships with other people is, I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> like, I'm just not right. gonna have relationships. He did let Molly people. go, which you could consider growth, but yeah, the sequestering yourself and. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm alive. He shows up and he's like, hey, I'm alive. Like, <laughs> he smells terrible. Like, he's <laughs> like a That would really throw a monkey self. wrench into the relationship triangle of uh, right. Burge, Fitz, and Molly for sure. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe he'll do that in one of the future books. It is it is kind of interesting how Fitz's whole thing at the beginning was like, oh, I never knew my dad, blah, blah, blah. And then he has his own kid and ends up never, you know, being in the situation where they've never met. Mm. You know, there is something in that that I always found interesting. It's like talking about like learning, like if this was a different story, it'd be like, and then Fitz promised to like, the story ends with Fitz um, sitting by the fire with his daughter in his lap and he's like i'll always be here for you i'll never let you go like the end you know like certain other books might end where you get to have like the the family and and love and a chance at normal life and 
we don't get that. We're repeating the same mistakes. There's this cyclical, systematic nature about these royalty and these people who are fighting at the top of this politics level where they just kind of sacrifice their relationships and their individuality and their sense of selves quite literally feeding them to dragons so that they could fight enemies and then that part where literally the dragons defeat the red ships is yada yada at the end and some people criticize that like how could you just rush the end it's like that's the point people like this whole thing is that Fitz wasn't there understanding of what the story is about it's beautiful that that she did that that. yeah like yeah go ahead because you're you're totally right about it yeah it's just a fun the story that's the epic fantasy ending that we have nothing to do with by the end because (laughs) the story is and always has been a character study of Fitz Mm -hmm. and this idea that we should get this miraculous ending where the king that turned into the dragon is defeating everyone and so everyone's celebrating and it's like he returns to the throne. It's like that is all just stuff that happened as, you know, because of Fitz's sacrifice in, mm-hmm. in part anyway. But the results of Fitz making that sacrifice that's the story and or right. the ending of the story. And right. it's the part we're not usually told. And if you want a dragon coming in and saving the day at the end of the novel, uh, especially in 1997, like that's every novel. <laughs> Lots <laughs> like, of novels that do yeah. that, you know, <laughs> that give you that epic battle at the end, good versus evil, all these things. And like you even kind of get the Red Ship Raiders, they're just presented as just chaotically evil people they just are malicious for no reason you find the reason is revenge from generations ago that the nation totally forgot they even did in the first place (laughs) which is kind of funny and again this all gets yada yada because it's not the focus and it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting beautiful part of the book where it's like that stuff happened, and I'm telling you it happened, but Fitz was not there. This is not that had nothing to do with how Fitz ended up being as an adult, you know, like he already paid the price of his his life and his individuality to get to that point. And then while that's happening, he's off with with night eyes, hiking, hunting, living in a shack. And that's what that story did to him, right? Like these glory moments of like epic wartime and epic songs, like people that get to kind of reap all of that. Fitz gets to reap none of that. He like paid the price and didn't get any of their returns, essentially. And it's the kind of that tragedy of his character that is the whole point of the book. Like this was never going to be a epic standoff like battle of the five armies last stand it 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 was always going to be this thing that kind of petered out and he's like i'm done i guess am i better or worse i don't know (laughs) the end and you're like wow what happened to this poor guy and like like that just kind of makes you think about just kind of the way society can work sometimes and the way that things don't always work out all the time it's an interesting thought to explore and I don't know, Fitch is one of those really interesting 
characters and fantasy. He's not topping any charts of people's like favorite fantasy characters of all time, but he's up there in terms of most interesting for sure. Yeah, interesting and it's but interesting more in terms of just what ha- like the external things that happen yeah. to him and yeah. how that beats him down and affects him more so than like as a person i guess he's like almost got some like like harry potter self insert to him but in the opposite way like what (laughs) like what if a relatively blank slate person that you could put yourself in the position of uh, instead of having everything you know, besides his parents down. getting killed and a like light i'm saying potter like a, you know right. his parents got killed when he was too young to remember it got mm. got the badass lightning scar and that was oh, like yeah. a, you know and some bad things happened to potter but in the end it's like he well i won't spoil anything but lots of good things happen to harry potter and sure. it's more inserting yourself into this narrative of the blank slate hero. Yeah, it's it's whimsical. Then, it's exciting. Yeah. It's, you know. We get to be the hero if we're yeah. reading. And that's the the point, or at least the one of the reasons why that series is so massively successful is because it's right. so easy to answer. Right. And right. then it's like... This, it's very easy to self-insert into Fitz because, like, what are Fitz's characteristics? Like, it's, you can name a few just the same way you could with Potter, but they're not super strong in the way that Mm -hmm. you could say for, like, let's say, Joe Abercrombie's Logan Nine Fingers, right? We could so easily, we've done entire episodes talking about his characteristics as as a person. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, you know, Quoth, as we've mentioned, Kingkiller Crockle with his charisma and his ability to lie and his ability to act and uh, how suave he is and blah, blah, blah. And is he, uh, is he making it all up? It's like, uh, <laughs> there's so many, you know, his, his fits, like he's a little bit brash sometimes. Uh, he's going to be he's mostly passive. Yeah, he's mostly passive definitely uh, and is passive a characteristic sure but it's not exactly a hero's characteristic it's not one that makes it hard to self-insert and he spends so much time doing stuff that he doesn't want to do and like just following other people around going on these missions that were asked of him that he rarely gets the chance to develop his own personality. And it's like all the stuff that he likes to do, he's told not to do. It's like, oh, don't bond to an animal. Oh, don't chase Molly. Like, you know, and and all he wants, he just, he never got the chance in part. But that, like you said, we find ourselves self-inserting, like unwillingly almost through Hobbes's strategy of like Fitz i'm gonna make you sucked into a skill dream of courage <laughs> we're just right she skilled us into Fitz's brain is will. what it feels like yeah. it, it's through just beautiful beautiful prose i can't tell you how much i enjoyed even when i was like okay what's happening is kind of going on for a long time especially in the last book which is longer than the other two books combined um, and doesn't have any more happening in it, and no, arguably less than book it two. It does not. It does not. And so, 
the, those things combined, I still was like fully on board at all time. I was just enjoying it because she's an incredible, incredible writer. And it's like you said, Dylan, she skilled us into Fitz's mind. And it's like we are Fitz experiencing those things in some way. And she creates this character in such a way that that self-insert does kind of that effect creeps its way into the reading experience. There's not like, what is the personality traits? Like what Zodiac sign is Fitz, you know, total Aries. It's like, you, <laughs> like you, he's, he's nothing. He, he's whatever you are interpreting it to you be. You know what Harry Potter house he is? Hufflepuff. <laughs> oh, 100% Hufflepuff. <laughs> oh, he'd be like, oh, I'm Gryffindor. It's like, come on, bro. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I don't so. Think Everyone yeah, wants to be Gryffindor, think... not you. <laughs> well, you know, there is kind of there's like now everyone's so obsessed with those Harry Potter houses that like there there's a lot more Hufflepuff pride than than there was. Hufflepuff you know, is uh, having a resurgence. I've noticed ago. that. I've noticed that too. Now that you've said it, and I'm like, why are people like simping for Hufflepuff right now? Like they are the everyone else. They're the normies yeah. in the magical world. To be normal in a world where magic exists, that is Hufflepuff. Okay, yeah, Gryffindor I mean, is the, obviously magic, the best. There's always they're... people that were like coping and saying they'd be in Ravenclaw, and I'm just like, hey, guys, come on, Rave, uh, Slytherin and and Gryffindor are the only houses worth. Being I wouldn't want to be in Slytherin. Yeah, you don't. Really I think want I it. would when I you know I think Harry Potter like school. Uh, Harry Potter house tests are, are silly. You know, worked out personality. <laughs> What's so silly lab, about the so sorting a, hat? There's a part of yeah. There's there's a part of me that's like this is uh, this is setting psychology back. But there's also the, the like you know the part of me that's like this is good old fashioned just silly fun. Mm. And when I've taken them, I always get Ravenclaw, and I do think that I would be Ravenclaw. Like, mm. that's, you know, it is mm-hmm. the house that's, like, more academic. I'm not coping. This is copium <laughs> here. I'm, I, it's the more, like, academic house, and that's where my life has kind of gone. Um, <laughs> well, so, have fun, and then I'm going to be with the popular kids in Gryffindor. I guess Barry could probably be a Gryffindor, but he's leaning for Hufflepuff you're a for Slytherin. me, too. Slytherin? How could you say that <laughs> yeah. about your own lifelong friend and co-host? <laughs> Because <laughs> I've known him for my entire life. <laughs> what would make That's me Slytherin? Regal is uh, Slytherin. Your boy. Yeah, but they're not. You see, there's also this like Slytherin resurgence where people are like, Slytherins aren't bad. They're just ambitious. <laughs> like, they're the most likely they're... to call for a Holocaust and this other kind of craziness. But that doesn't mean they're all bad. <laughs> So there's just yeah. every anyway. single person from Voldemort's little sphere is all Slytherin, but you know what? Yeah, this has nothing to do with not the all house. Bad. They're plenty, yeah. But fits not all Slytherin. Hashtag not all. Slytherin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's good people in every house. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, there's that. But yeah. Anyway, we are. <laughs> We are kind of bring it like back. The, yeah, bring it back to Fitz. Like it's like the anti Harry Potter. It's like you get to really put yourself in a relatively blank slate character who everything bad happens to and ends up a sad recluse. Like, <laughs> did you like my book? <laughs> and amazingly, most people do. Like the, yeah, that's the, the amazing part. Louder than the yeah. 
are the critics can be louder at times than the fans, but it's I mean it's a hugely popular series yeah. and Hobbs I mean Assassin's Quest on Goodreads has a 4.2 average rating. So sure, when you read the reviews, you'll find plenty of people who are mad that we didn't get more dragons. Right. But the it's average got 150,000 reviews too, which is pretty yeah. high. So, 150,000 ratings. Yeah, ratings. That's right. 7,500 so, reviews. That's right. That's Sorry. correct. I'll, yeah, but it, for know, a third it's book, a hugely good. popular series. For a third book, that's fantastic. And, and it's it's obvious to anyone who's familiar with uh, like the f- big fantasy authors that Hobb has established herself among uh you know the biggest living fantasy authors so like hero uh, oh yeah okay so there, there's a it's lot like a but... king killer in that way too right like king killer it's like these books have ridiculously high average ratings on mm-hmm. goodreads or amazon wherever you want to go they sell a million copies and then it's like anywhere you go online it feels like you just have people just reaming the books and it's like <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. For some reason, the percentage of people just... that leave reviews is like one percent of the right. like t- one to ten percent of the like total audience that's that's experiencing these books, right? And you, yeah. you're more likely if you have a strong opinion, whether it's good or bad, to leave a review as well. So they're never perfect. I I do think that like there's pretty consistent comments about this book. And about the series as a whole, and like we've talked to other um, friends in the fantasy creating creator community, and it's not uncommon for the Farseer trilogy to to catch a little catch some strays, as they say, catch a little slack um, mm. in some of the community for being boring or to being like. Um, you know, oh, Fitz is not a good character and all these other things. And I think that was a, a like Hobbes knew the risk she was taking and took it anyway for the sake of artistic integrity. And the fact that she's able to make these like some of the most influential works of modern fantasy and one of the classics, like modern classics now, for sure. It is for a character that's super unlikable in a story that's well not super unlikable for a, for a, like an unusual main character and like a more tragic story uh, a more slower paced meditative introspective story bold choices hard to succeed it's like so much easier to write a story with lots of sex and blood and guts and like you know Game of Thrones, for example, like those characters are doing crazy ass violent stuff, crazy ass sexual stuff all the time. Like Court of Thorns and Roses, super sexual, like it's action packed hey, stuff know, going Fitz on. Is, Fitz is willing to get down with some body switching sex. <laughs> Fitz so. is into some freaky stuff. No judgment. I mean, hey, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic that he creates with 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 the skill for sure. Um, brings in a whole level to relationships that i had never considered before or since but um yeah it's uh it's it's definitely those ideas to me that they have stuck with me for so long you know we've read hundreds of fantasy books but the ending of like molly and 
birch getting together and the body swapping to procreate a royal heir and all that other stuff. It just sticks with me. It's so unique and original and just that stuff like that just catches my attention and sticks to my memory just so much better than just the the run of the mill kind of fantasy. And I applaud Robin Hobb for it. It's not easy to come up with like these crazy original thoughts that are as layered as hers are. And and I think that's one of the main reasons why these stories are just so successful. For sure. The Fitz character stuff makes me think about we've talked about this before. Brandon Sanderson has this slider model for character development, like how you make an interesting character. You mm-hmm. know, Sanderson loves turning these things into <laughs> he gamifies the whole process and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and it's hard to argue with his success oh 100 I mean, he knows what he's talking and about they're, yeah they're very thoughtful sometimes you can't you know sometimes what makes a character work is is more ineffable than breaking it down into sliders right. like this and in some ways that is like that is fits which is what's very impressive in what robin hobb does because uh Basically, to write like a quote-unquote good character, a character people right. like in the sense that they like reading about them or say, this is my favorite character, even if they're not like a nice person. Right. Um, uh, he has these three sliders. Uh, there's sympathy, which is okay. just that straightforward, like, is this character likable? Like, if you make them okay. more likable, that usually helps. But then there's competence. Is this character good at what he or she does uh, or what they do? And proactivity to what extent is this character driving the plot in other words how much do they (laughs) quote unquote protag and it's like we've used this to discuss let's say a friend of the show mark lawrence has uh prince of thorns as a series where it's like you can turn the sympathy all the way down if you want like you can make this character not likable at all but if you do what um what mark lawrence does with jorg and you make competence very high, and you make proactivity all the way <laughs> jacked up to the top, right. then we actually have an interesting character that even right. though you've got all the way at the bottom with their likability, people still are like, oh, Jorg is a great yeah, character. Yeah, he's a great so you character. Gotta, he is a great character. For those exact reasons. Uh, but with yes. the answer to Fitz and, is, it's like, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like sympathy. Like, is this character likable? Not super it's low, nothing like Jorg. Uh, no. Not not super high either. Like let's give him around the middle. Competence. I'd say he's maybe a little more of like sixty percent on the likable. You know, just like sure. that slight bump towards likable. Let's give him the sixty percent. Sure. Competence. Are they good at what they do? Not really. Like he has they... a lot of natural abilities, but they never like. There's either taken advantage of or cut off or suppressed right. like or squandered. he could have been good at the skill maybe but he doesn't end up because of the ways in which it's blocked and he's not trained so like he's not really good at the skill uh he's i guess good at the wit for whatever that's worth uh he's, he's kind of a good fighting fighter, but he's it's good like, at rowing he's good, he's <laughs> he's good at rowing. uh yeah i know you value that as a <laughs> former <laughs> member of our i do appreciate team, a good rowing but, scene <laughs> right but it's underrated like, i don't know yeah. generally speaking i would say 
Fitz is not particularly competent at most of the things that he, he does pretty do. much fail at everything he yeah. sets out to do <laughs> <laughs> so i would say no and then pro- proactivity is like super low because it's to yeah. what extent is this character driving the plot it's like uh, the the, the plot's uh, what in. they say like the <laughs> the, the tails wagging the dog with yeah. uh <laughs> right whatever they say there right like that right. is fits like the plot drives fits and not, not right. vice versa but, but at the same time he's so crucial like, to the plot right and sure. meanwhile like he's the one that figures out how to turn on all the dragons turn on that's my 21st Ooh. century brain um just to, to, to um <laughs> just technology flip the switch yeah just flip the you know reboot them <laughs> um yeah but He's not exactly proficient in any one skill, and everyone keeps berating him for how clueless he is all the time. Um, right. So but anyway, he is able the to point do I'm trying to make things. is like if Brandon Sanderson, massively successful author, he uses these tools all the time, and it's been with almost every character that I've tried to put this into. I'm like, oh, this this pretty much works. Like, uh, yeah. let's say, like, Quoth, kind of lower on the sympathy, but higher on the other two. Uh, like, there's other characters that are higher on the sympathy, but are lower on the other two that we still like. It's like, uh, I don't know. Glockta, for Fitz example, just... he's a torturer, but he's funny and endearing and right. capable, like those kind of things. Abercrombie does a lot of lower on likability and higher on other things. <laughs> yeah, or like why so of... many people don't like Giselle in yeah. the first law series because he's actually like pretty low on just about all of them <laughs> except maybe competence at like his particular skill set of sword fighting in a very particular <laughs> kind of duel. Like, right. so then people, you know, he's low on sympathy, he's low on uh, proactivity and he's not, he's kind of, you know, he's competent one particular thing. So people don't like him, even though he's not nearly as bad a person as the guy torturing people for a living. So it's like, right. you look at most characters and they, I don't know, they just like, you can find why they are received in the way they're received based mm-hmm. on these sliders. Fits, it just, fits does not fit. And I was just about this, to say that yeah. he doesn't fit the bill. <laughs> no, it's like, I don't know how to explain Fitz in reference to these things. And I don't know why people react to Fitz in the way that they do in reference to those sliders. It's like, he's such a unique and different character and such a close examination yeah. I mean, of his. Robin Hobbs created a story that exists outside of all of that stuff. It's like she took the Sanderson 101 course and was like, cool, now I'm not going to do any. I'm going to break all of those rules in my story yeah. because my <laughs> Even story is. The Sanderson rules came way later. Than... Yeah, right, right. The Sanderson Wait. was a boy reading <laughs> Wheel of Time when she. <laughs> published the first book right but you know these are arguably things that he kind of academicized you know he caught on to like these are standard fantasy things that hob was you know reading lord of the rings and you know there's all this other stuff that came out around it and she's just like nah what we need to do is like write a really intimate story about one person and really push the limits of like real 
like put a real lens on society and put a real lens on humanity's struggles and let's try and come to terms with that you know and she makes a really fantastic effort at it and i think one of the main reasons she succeeds she doesn't offer a whole lot in terms of solutions she offers a whole lot in terms of like here's what happened here's the very honest perspective here it is in all its complicated messy glory um see you next time <laughs> and like that's kind of the and you're like see what for the tawny man <laughs> trilogy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what? Uh, but it's important because to come up with an answer is almost a disservice to what she's trying to say, which is that there is no answer. And sure, fantasy is an escape and can, can be an escape. And a lot of different stories are escapes for people. Um, but this is fantasy that's not an escape. This is fantasy that's trying to grapple with um, all the ugliness around humanity and society and it <laughs> willingly grapples with it and pulls nothing back and, and and faces it all i mean we're talking about your pregnant significant other giving birth and then leaving you for your dad you're the person that raised you <laughs> like a dad you're not you know it's like this is what we're talking about here this is wild stuff yeah. Yeah, when you're talking about fantasy as escapism and how uh, this this relates to it, it's like you know that corny thing people say like I need a vacation for my vacation like, I need a fantasy for my fantasy like, you need right? a fantasy book to escape from the yeah. fantasy of being a person reading Robin Hood I know uh, I know I need just a puff piece to just to, destroy you know like a whoa classic. that is do not say puff piece that is a slur for hufflepuffs <laughs> <laughs> yes yes yeah. how i'm, I'm so that sorry you know i'm from another time i didn't know yeah. okay i'm trying to correct myself so please <laughs> all you new hufflepuff people out there who all of a sudden came out of the woodwork of these past decade or so, please forgive me. You know, I come from a time where it was embarrassed, like it was not accepted socially to be Hufflepuff. <laughs> to be Hufflepuff. And you had to hide that part <laughs> Pretend of yourself to be Gryffindor. and repress it. Yeah. So some things are just in my vernacular as part of the time period I grew up in. I'm consciously making the effort to change. So I hope you can... Forgive me, all you Hufflepuffers out there. <laughs> Whoa. Just say <laughs> Huffle. <laughs> all you people belonging to the house of Hufflepuff. Okay, all you he's people working on belonging it. He's to working the house on of it. Hufflepuff. Yeah, thank, you for, thank you for educating me. <laughs> even though you're not I mean, a member of that house, you're a total Ravenclaw, so I don't even know what, you know, <laughs> what gives you the authority to lecture me. But, um, well, isn't okay. that just so ravenclaw right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. but um all right i mean we've pretty much talked a whole lot about this book i guess you know all that's left to do here is kind of just your your parting words you know we this is our first robin hobb trilogy coming to a close um how you feeling what like where do we where do you sit with robin hobb like I, would you read on in the future like how, where are you standing here yeah two thumbs up to hob mm. and to this trilogy i i really enjoyed it i think it was time that i 
finally read the whole trilogy and can say I've read a full Robin Hobb trilogy, <laughs> participate in, in that discussion because it was one of those... We all have some holes in our, uh, you know, books that we've read that we're like, why have I not read this? We just continue Mm -hmm. to not read it. And this was one of them. So Mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, I'm glad I did. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do want to keep going eventually uh, with these books. There is a part of me that's like, oh, but this was such a good conclusion. I'm trying to think what that like. Yeah. It's like when they... How you pick that um, back up. Yeah, when they like revamp an old series after it's already done, but it actually... Right. like I'm not thinking... Because there's some series that end like... Scrubs. I don't know. Let's say like Arrest... <laughs> yeah, Scrubs. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Because I actually had like a really good finale. And then they're like, Scrubs Med School. Yeah. And it's like, oh no, you're ruining it. <laughs> like... And then the characters come so, back and like, this is just perverse. I don't want to see yeah. them in this setting. Like, what is going on? Right. <laughs> no one wanted this. And, you ended it right. Yeah. You know how hard it is to end a series in a way that makes most people happy? It's borderline impossible. Yeah, it's very <laughs> difficult. So I would say, I, you know, I have so much faith in Hobbes' writing. In no way do I expect that the Tawny Man trilogy would be uh, the Scrubs Med School of (laughs) the Realm of the Elderlings world. But it does have that feeling where like, do I want to disturb something that feels very whole? And mess with a good thing, you know? (laughs) Done so well. And the answer will eventually be yes. But right now it's going to be, let's let's sit on this for a little while. Right. I, I feel you. Uh, that vacation yeah. from a vacation I, like i ended that book being like robin hobb is like one of the best writers in the game i'm definitely yeah reading the rest you know at the time when i first read it many like a long time ago i was i loved it and i was ready to just continue to crank through that tbr pile now that we've read so many of the like most famous works of fantasy i'm ready to like dive more into it but i think that break to take in some other authors work and then i'll be just itching to come back to this in the very near future i feel like because Mm. i feel like she's only just getting started you know and this is her earliest works so you got to imagine that as she progresses like she's been writing this over the course of nearly 30 years so there's a lot to grow and change with with this world that I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting into. But, you know, in the meantime, you got a lot of other fantasy to read. Um, we're going to jump back into the court of thorns and roses series. We're going to have to do another friends pitching fantasy very soon, since we've Mm. met our reading commitments already for that. And we, we need new stuff to read. Um, so you can expect that in the near future and in the really near future, I think you can expect that sweet, sweet outro music. What do you say, Dylan? You know what else was really bad was Zoolander 2. Like when they... Yeah, Anchorman 2. And that... You know what's funny? I thought that was terrible. Did we see that together? Yes, we did. Yeah, we saw that together. It was... We thought it was really bad. And it actually got like decent reviews. I mean, I stand by my opinion. I was like, no one in the theater was laughing. Like that theater <laughs> no. agreed with us that it was not good. <laughs> 
I mean, I haven't so seen bad. it since. Why would I? But I remember no. distinctly it being not funny. The second Zoolander, I think, was even worse. I never even but saw yeah, that. I, yeah. Anyway. And I think that one was also, like, panned by critics. So, like, lots of people agreed. Uh, maybe yeah. some people really liked the second Anchorman. I, but, you know, I wish I could feed the memory of watching Anchorman 2 to the dragon. I think I almost <laughs> did because I couldn't, I was like, wait, was, I couldn't even oh, gosh. remember. I was like, wait, did I see that with Charles? Uh, yeah. But yeah, we did see that together. It's, yeah. uh, yeah. So when they revamp stuff, always a little, a little bit of a worry, but well, I'm sure I think the next Hobbs... trilogy is all new characters. So, um, I think she like, like the really? story of Fitz ebbs and flows. Yeah, I think the next trilogy chronologically doesn't have Fitz in it at all. I'm pretty sure. Um, what about it's Fitz the, and the Fool? That's the very last trilogy. That's, you know, you have to read about three, six, nine, ten books before you get to Fitz and the Fool. Wow. You get the live ship traders next, um, which. I don't think has fits in it as a character or a main point of view character or anything. Um, mm. It's still in the six duchies. It's it's next chronologically, but Fitz oh. is not in it. But then Fitz returns for like like my understanding of it is he comes and goes. I, I try not to read too much about it to avoid spoilers, yeah. but I just I just know that. He's not in that one, and I think he's in the one after it, the Tawny Man trilogy. Um, so it's the more after. like it's more like Ten Cloverfield Lane. To uh, yeah, uh, and that was a great sequel. That was an awesome sequel. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that was that was good stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, <laughs> I I think. It must be time now, Charles. It must be time <laughs> to, to get that sweet, sweet. Oh, can I? Okay, last, yeah. last thing. Okay, and there's a nice thing. Yeah. Uh, it's not just attacking Zoolander <laughs> two. Zoolander one, great, but great movie. I want to say the the fan outreach over the the Farseer trilogy and Robin Hobbs' work has oh, been yeah. very impressive. Like I know you're oh, not yeah. on the gram a lot, Charles. Nor are you on the the old X that much mm-hmm. these days either. Um, mm-hmm. We've definitely been less active on social media, but uh, it's uh, yeah X. You know, not really not really doing what Twitter used to do. And right. I think though Instagram especially, a lot of folks seem to be That's enjoying great. our coverage. And, you know, there has been some on X. So thank you to everyone who's And yeah, the response out. in terms of like the viewership of these episodes is yeah. particularly high, which I'm like super happy to see. Um it's like you said, like the haters can kind of stand like the criticism can kind of stand out online. Yeah. But haters gonna these hate, are hate, 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 haters hate. gonna hate, 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 hate. But these are beloved classics and it's good to see that the Hob fandom is, yeah. is going strong. And I Hobber's really gonna hob 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 hob. <laughs> gonna hob 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 hob, baby. And, and they've been tuning in. And they've been tuning in, and I love it, and I can't wait to get into live ship traders uh, someday. It won't be in the immediate, immediate future, but it will be in the relatively near future, I, I think. Uh, I don't want to wait too long, but I also could use a couple books 
in between, you know. So Need we'll get there. From your fantasy. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening. I mean, yeah, the sponsors has been really great. We had so much fun talking about them, and you know, I'm, I'm glad we can have Robin Hobb in our catalog of episodes. Yeah. Um, that was an author who I always thought we kind of underserved on the show. So I'm really happy that we're able to to bring these episodes into the fold. And who knows what we'll bring in next? Only time will tell when we do Friends Pitching Fantasy again. I think I've got my picks. You know, we're going into Spooktober. Um, so I might pick Ooh. a couple of spooky books. Um, we'll see. Uh, yet to decide. But uh, we're going to have to do it soon if we're going to read these in time for October. It's already halfway through <laughs> September and we got some other commitments to do. So um, we'll see what we can crank out by the end of October. But uh, maybe it'll be a spook November. <laughs> Let's keep the spooky season going. Time. Am I right, Charles? Just <laughs> You're right. Time. It'll get that you. Time, man. It sneaks up on you, boy. <laughs> you know what else sneaks you. up on you? <laughs> Actually, it does not. It's a no, sweet, sweet outro music. you got to drag it out forcibly yeah, if it's ever going to make you. an appearance. So <laughs> before we've this... Tried <laughs> we've tried a bunch my of times. My fault. Yeah, it's uh, my yeah fault. but it's okay. I, I was happy to do it. You know you know, I can't resist. I, you know, I've always got to indulge the the ramblings at the end. You know, It's kind of just yeah. a fun thing to do. Um, but I, I think we're serious this time. I think it's really time to go ahead and get the outro okay. music pumping. As tempting as I am to scramble for another segue, I'm not going to do it because I think we just need to end the show. You know, this was this is the podcaster equivalent of no, you hang up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you. <laughs> no, you up. play the sweet, sweet outro yeah. music. Yeah. No, you. But you know what? Another trilogy in the books. Another author like covered. This is a good milestone for us. A great point in the show. I'm very happy to be talking about it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I certainly loved the reread. And um, I think all it's left to do to pay tribute to this lovely series is to play that sweet, sweet outro music. Let's get that sweet, sweet outro music <laughs> pumping, Charles. All right, <laughs> almost, here we go. Almost attacked another. <laughs> I saw you considering <laughs> it, but um, we got it. We got there, guys. Thank you all so much for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, if you want to support the show or talk to us about your experience with um, the Fitz uh, trilogy here, um, the Varsier trilogy, uh, do that over on the socials. That's on uh, Instagram at the FTF podcast and at the FTF podcast with a one at the end. And actually, Doom, I was at a conference, a marketing conference just last week, and they had X yeah. parentheses Twitter was how yeah. they showed it. So we're in the transitional period. We're getting I, I'm just the- telling you, look, I'm team Twitter, but I'm telling you eventually that parentheses, the parenthetical's going away. We're chronicling it live on the yeah. show. Historians, anthropologists can look back and be like, okay, like <laughs> we know where the public's mind was. We're now at the X parentheses Twitter stage. The denial yeah. phase is kind of fading. Like at some point you have to call it X because the logo's X, but no one knows what you're talking about. So the parentheses Twitter is there at yeah. the FTF podcast with a number one at the end. Now, Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they want to support the show even further than reaching out on the socials, what can they do? 
Toss five stars to our podcast, which you can do now over on Spotify, where most of you are listening. It's just two clicks over at the top of the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast feed, and it helps us so much when you do that. You can also rate and or review on Apple Podcasts, and uh, yeah, it's pretty cool when you write us a review. I have to say that, because whenever someone puts anything nice down in one of those reviews, it just puts a smile on my face and presumably on Charles's face as well. But just listening is more of it. Thank you so much for Just listening, guys. Thank you all so, so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends. When I get emails from X, it says X in parentheses, formerly Twitter. (laughs) And they're doing that (laughs) on their own. Yeah. Wow. But that parenthetical skill. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to stop recording. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.